middle of our three solas series. Uh, this is the time of the church year that we're celebrating the Reformation, the return to uh, the truths of the Scripture. It's a historical event that happened about 1,500 years after Jesus and the writing and of uh, the Gospels. Um, and it was a time in church history, modern New Testament church history, when the church itself had almost become completely spiritually bankrupt. And here's the reason why. They turned completely away from the truths of the Scripture that were so dear to those first apostles and the, the teachings of Jesus. And the church became so infiltrated with uh, paganism somewhat and also superstition that the Word of God got twisted in ways that the gospel was almost unrecognizable. And during that time, God brought forth reformers um, uh, that went back to God's Word and said, this is, this is what God's Word has to say for, to you and to me, the clear truth. And it was summarized in three ways that those reformers summarized it. They said, it's by grace alone. Sola gratia is the Latin term. It's by Scripture alone, sola scriptura. And it's by faith alone, sola fide. Those are the three, you can say, um, bedrocks of returning to Scripture. Now, that's the historical event that we're celebrating but in the scripture today, I want to bring you back, whether you have been far away from the truth of the gospel and you're hearing it for the first time, or whether you are in the gospel, I would like the scripture to speak to you and have a spiritual renewal yourself about what God's messaging is to you. And what it means today, last week we talked about the gift, grace, this week we're going to talk about the packaging of the gift that comes in words, the scripture, and how important it is that we keep the Scripture in our lives devotionally, day to day, and in our habits of worship life like we're here this morning. Um, and Paul writes to the Corinthians about when he brought the Scriptures to them and the message of the truth of the Gospel. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaim to you the testimony about God for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words but with a demonstration of the spirit's power so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. He addresses the Corinthians as, in the Greek, adelphoi, which is the Greek way of saying to a group of people that you're writing to that you're my spiritual siblings in God. This is a common thing that he says to them because he knows them, and he knows these Corinthians personally. It was on his second missionary journey that Paul was traveling through what was modern-day Greece, and he came to Corinth. Corinth was a city that was, in a lot, lot of ways, like Austin, it was a very influential city. It was a city that was very cultured and prided itself on its culture. And it, and it was a city that was very economically powerful, um, politically powerful. It was, a, it, it was sat in a place of trade. A lot of trade went through it, and so there's a lot of new ideas coming through this city. And, and these Christians that were at the church in Corinth, Jews and Greeks, they were being influenced, it seems like, here in Corinthians by wise and persuasive teachers that came in 
and, um, and, and they used uh, mental gymnastics, and they used fancy footwork to try to get people to believe what they brought to the table, but it wasn't the gospel. And it was like rat poison for their faith. And so Paul says what he says here, I came to you to proclaim the simple truth of the gospel and he would do the same thing in Corinth that he did in all the other cities that he went to. He went into the synagogue. When he went into the synagogue, he preached to the Jews about the Messiah who was promised in the Old Testament scriptures who had come in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus died on the cross for their sins to take away all of their sins and the sins of the world and he rose again to give them eternal life. That was the simple gospel that he presented to them. And Paul, although Paul was this great orator and we know that in, in the, later on in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he writes beautifully, right? Very persuasive, very eloquent, very able to connect with people on, on any kind of intellectual level. Let me just read through the book of Romans and you'll see how, how smart he is and how he lays out his arguments. But what does he say he does with the Corinthians? He says he threw it all away. Why? Because the fancy footwork, the wrapping, all of that stuff was taking away from what? The simple message of the gospel presented in scriptures. I was uh, at the Community Fall Festival yesterday, our Trunk or Treat event, and I was dressed up as Mario, okay? S- super tall, big Mario. And um, there was this guest that came, and, and they said to me, uh, uh, they loved it because I grew up in the same generation as them in the 80s and 90s when this was all taking off, and it was 8-bit Mario at that time. And, uh, and they said, oh, I love your costume. And I said, thank you. I like, look forward to this more than my kids look forward to Halloween this year. And they said, uh, they said, yeah, we haven't been here before. I said, by the way, I'm the pastor at the church here. <laughs> and they said, no way. You guys have fun here. I said, we're Lutherans. <laughs> And then they said this. They said, do you ever preach in that costume? And, I, you know, for half a second, I thought in my head, if it gets you to come to church. But I said, no, I don't preach in this costume, and I won't preach in this costume, but thanks for asking. Did you see that, what I was thinking in my head there for just a second, though? It's not the wrapping. It's not what I wear up here or what I don't wear up here although I'm wearing a traditional garb that the church has been wearing for many, many years. In fact, as a statement to say it's not about what I'm wearing. And Paul is doing the same thing with them, but he's doing it to demonstrate the Spirit's power. And if you want to understand the Spirit's power, you're going to understand that it's not about the wrapping, it's about the Word. And that's how he works. Um. How did they receive his message? This is a brief history. Uh, Book of Acts covers this all. He got rejected in the synagogue. He went to the Gentiles after that. He got brought to court much later on. Uh, He was there for months. And in court, he was asked to denounce everything that he was preaching, but he didn't. And then he spoke the truth, and he continued to speak the truth after that. It's a scary thing to speak the truth, isn't it? Um. Can you imagine those victims of sexual assault? The first one or the second one who come forward 
against the most powerful man in Hollywood. That takes courage and bravery to do that. Because it's not easy to speak the truth. It's easier. It, it could cost you your life. It could cost you your career. It could cost your family. It it's easier to hide the truth, isn't it, than to speak the truth because of the cost to life itself. But it was not enough for Paul to remain silent or to shut down the ministry or to stop telling the truth because what? There's life's at risk. Life's past, life's present, and life's future at risk if he didn't tell the truth. Spiritual lives. And so he comes to them, not with wise and influential words, but in stark opposition to that, he puts that aside The message that he brings scares him. In fact, it scares him to death. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. But the message came through. He says, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. And, three, God's Spirit did it. Demonstration of the Spirit's power. Which makes it clear that your life of faith, and this is the bedrock of it all, your life of faith doesn't depend on Paul's mental gymnastics or Pastor Dan's fancy footwork or this great preaching or an oration and intellectual arguments, but what is your faith based on? The Spirit's power. The Spirit's power. That's why he does it, and that's why he says that at the end that it's based completely on the Spirit's power, and your life is not in my hands. Your life is not in uh, Pastor Patterson's hands or the vicar's hands or any other man's hands except for whose? God's hands because he created your faith and he created your life and he did it through the Word of God that is an unbiased truth. And this is the bedrock of our life as Christians, that our life is based on the unbiased truth that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah that came to die for your sins because He found you in your sins and to give you new life. And He says that in His Scripture that that's where He creates that faith. And He gives you that faith so that you don't have to be reliant on one person or a certain type of wrapping or a certain type of presentation, but on the Word of God on the scriptures that were preached to you, that were given to you. And we're going to talk about that by faith next week. But you see now that that your bedrock of your life isn't dependent on anything else except for that book that's sitting in front of you and God speaking to you in words and the power of his means of grace to bring you to life. The foundation of a life built on God's word is the unbiased simple truth that God loves you unconditionally. And for the next 10 or 10 verses or so, Paul goes into this comparison of this life that is transformed by God's word versus the life of this world. And he compares them saying that the, the life that you've been given in the word of God is so, much, is, 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 is so much better because you now have, and he says at the end of this chapter, verse 16, he says that now because of this faith that you have that's given to you in the scripture, you have the mind of Christ. 
You have the mind of Christ. That's what's been given to you. By grace, you're forgiven, and by grace, you have now a new perspective on life completely that is completely a grace-based, objective fact in your life now that you're going to live out to other people. What does the mind of Christ look like? It looks like this. Do you remember the story of that prodigal son, the son who wasted everything? He went away. He took his father's inheritance early, just like his father was an ATM or a slot machine. He took his money. He squandered it all. And then he hit rock bottom. And when he hit rock bottom, what did he do? He said to himself, wow, I should go back and just be a servant in my father's household because it'd be a lot better being a servant there than working and being desolate out here. So he returns home. And as he returns home, what does his father do? Well, first of all, it's interesting where his father is. His father is sitting there on the porch looking out, and he sees his son coming in a distance. And this old man, in my mind's eye, I see running out to this, to this boy, to this, to this son that has squandered everything and has cut off all ties from the family, and he throws his arms around him, and he rejoices that his son that was dead is now alive again. And then he does what? He puts on a ring, a ring on his finger. He puts a robe on his back. He puts sandals on his feet. He throws him a party, and now I'm using my sanctified imagination, but this is the mind of Christ. Do you think that that son, when he's been shown love like that, will ever treat somebody like an ATM again? Will ever squander, will ever not be merciful and forgiving to every person in his life from then on? What has happened to his mind? What has happened to his heart? He's been shown grace so that now he lives grace. And I imagine when that man, that boy grows up to be a man, and when he puts that, Hannah, that ring on his finger that his old man gave him, and he shows his grandkids, and he tells them what? Here's how much my father loved me, and here's how much I love you. And he puts that robe on his back and he feels that warmth of that old robe that he puts on his back and he can feel again his father's love about how his father gave him clothes when he had none. Will he never in his life not try to find somebody to love and to put clothes on? He has the mind of Christ. And when he puts the sandals on his feet, he has, uh, he has, a, uh, he has something to put around his feet that reminds him about that love. That when he sees uh, somebody without sandals, that he's going to go there and he's going to find them sandals because he wants to show the same kind of grace and mercy in the life of other people. He has the mind of grace. That's the mind that you have. You've been given this promise in Scripture. You've been received it in baptism that you are part of God's family and now God says you have the mind of Christ. The Scriptures, words, they change everything. But you haven't had the mind of Christ each day, every day, all day, have you? I haven't. Paul goes on in the book of Corinthians, and I could go through the whole book. We could preach for three hours. And he says to them, why do you have infighting? In fact, he starts off the book by saying, you guys have these divisions among you, and you have rivalries, and is that the mind of Christ? To be divisive? To, to cut one another down when Jesus says, I, I, I allowed myself to be cut down for you so that I could bring you to God. Have the mind of Christ. And he goes on to talk about affairs within the church, within the body of believers. And is that the mind of Christ? 
to have fantasies about a man or a woman that isn't your spouse, is that the mind of Christ? Or is the mind of Christ saying no to sin and immorality? Yeah. Is the mind of Christ saying, I want this marriage to succeed because God gave me this marriage and he stays committed to me and I'm going to stay committed to my spouse, present or future? And then Paul goes on to talk about how, 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 how quick talkers are coming in and, and telling them that the resurrection isn't going to happen for them. And it's not. Is that the mind of Christ to believe every blog and every Jesus piece that comes on the History Channel from so-called experts instead of returning to the eyewitnesses like John, Jesus' very close disciple that writes, these things, the Word of God, the Scriptures, they're written that you may believe and that in the name of Jesus you may have life. And Paul says that now you have the mind of Christ. When our minds are not the mind of Christ, return to God's Word every day, each day, on your worst days, but even on your best days, because it's here that you find grace. It's here that you find the grace to be forgiven, and it's here that you find the grace to receive the mind of Christ again. And it's in this book, and only in this book, that you're going to find a message that is so unlike every other book out there. The Book of Mormon What's the messaging in the Book of Mormon? The Book of Mormon talks about how you need to be righteous, that you need to be worthy before God. The Quran, I found a passage this week um, that summarizes the whole book of Quran. It says, Fear the day that you shall be returned to Allah, then each soul shall be paid what it has earned. Buddha, in his uh, re- recordings of his disciples, recorded his last words, and he said, All component things in this world are transitory, they're passing away. Strive hard for your salvation. Among Jesus' last words on the cross, it is finished. Meaning you can stop striving. That He's done it all. He's lived a perfect life in your place. And that now, you can trust Him. And, you can trust his word. Even the difficult things that you've always struggled with in your life, and trust me, I'm human, I do too, when I look into the scriptures, and I've been in the scriptures a long time, and there are things that are difficult to understand, but when I know when he says, it is finished, that my sins are taken away, and that when he says that Jesus is alive, that I have life forever in heaven, I can trust his word, I'm going to go into his word with, not the mind of man, but with what? The mind of Christ you have the mind of Christ when you're in the Scriptures. Final three takeaways. When you have the mind of Christ, it changes everything because number one, the Gospel becomes uncompromising. The Gospel is uncompromising in the way that it presents the Gospel because if the Gospel isn't true, then what are we here for? We compromise so many things in our life, right? People compromise um, their workday for a cup of coffee. People compromise... Uh, their time around uh, family for, for something that they have in their hands just like this. They compromise so much. And, and here's the thing about it is that we begin to compromise the very truths of Scripture and the things that bring us life and the mind of Christ 
Um, because the world is telling us through smooth talk and through empty promises that you need to send your kid to what? The best school to get the best education because they're going to be the next Mark Zuckerberg. And so what do we do as parents? We pour them into that full time, all the time, each day, every day. We believe that our kid's going to be the next Serena Williams. And so we go to the tennis camps each day, every day, all day. And what becomes neglected after, after all the things that we pour into The Word of God, the very thing that God says, this is the truth. This is what I want you to pour yourself into because I'm giving you eternal promises that go beyond anything in this world. Jesus once said, whoever loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and is not my disciple. And what he's saying is not to disrespect or not love your father or mother, but what he's saying is that even the most intimate relationships in our life can compromise our relationship with God, the relationship that he created in his word, the relationship that he sustains in his word, because when even family and the close relationships drive us away from that, that puts and that's a threat to our spiritual welfare. But the gospel is uncompromising, and the gospel says, I'm going to forgive you, and I do forgive you. And Jesus forgives you. That's the uncompromising gospel that you have. That's the uncompromising gospel that when I, when I live out that gospel to my family or to my peer group or wherever I'm at in life, when I say this is the priority that I want to be around the word of God, that I want to be in devotion, that I want to be in connect group because I know that there that I get the mind of Christ and it's there that I get grace, what am I preaching to my children and my peer group? The gospel is uncompromising and the truth that you're forgiven is so important in my life that I'm making sacrifices for it because this gospel that I believe is uncompromising. Number two, the truth is worth living and dying for. There was once a Lutheran pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer in uh, Nazi Germany during World War II. He, he was a pastor that, uh, that had underground seminaries in this atheist state. And he left the he left Germany for just a little while to go to the United States, but he came back during the World War II because he knew of the atrocities that were happening. He continued to preach the gospel because he had the changed mind of Christ and he knew how valuable that was and, and, and the gift that he had to bring the good news to people there. He was arrested and he was imprisoned for two years. And for two years, he ministered from his prison to his parishioners through letters and correspondence. And he writes about this about this beautiful thing that we have worth suffering for. He says, God lets himself be pushed out of the world onto the cross. He is weak and powerless in the world. And that is precisely the way, the only way, in which he is with us and he helps us. The Bible makes quite clear that Christ helps us, not by virtue of his omnipotence or his power, but by virtue of his weakness and his suffering. The Bible directs man to God's powerlessness and suffering. Only the suffering God can help. Only the suffering God is revealed in Scripture because that's the only place that you find that God gave his life for you. And that message in your life is worth living for or dying for. And so maybe you're not dying for it today. Maybe you're not going to a concentration camp because of your faith, but it should raise the question in your mind, right? If this is worth dying for, then what am I living for? And finally, 
Number three, the word will do the work. And the mind of Christ teaches us to trust the word to do the work. Because just like the word did the work on your heart, it will do the work that it needs to do. We heard that in the first Bible reading from Isaiah, that the word goes to work and it makes places that are dry, um, it, it, it immerses them in, in, in moisture and it creates growth where there should be no growth, it, a miraculous growth, which is exactly what scripture does. It creates that miraculous growth in, in your life. Martin Luther, we've been waiting to get to that. We're in the Sola series. Here we go. Martin Luther is among the most influential people in world history by serious historians He's ranked within the top five regularly because of the impact that he had in this world. And whether you're in a church talking about him or in a classroom talking about him, it's undeniable that our world is shaped in a big way by reformers just like him. But if you were to ask Martin Luther what the catalyst was for the change, what the catalyst was for this reformation, what the catalyst was for a world now that asks questions that, 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 that asks questions even about authorities that are corrupt, what would he say? He would say, the Word did all the work. This is what he says about um, at the end of his career, at the end of his life, speaking about the big uh, reformation that happened during his time. He said, take me, for example. I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never by force. I simply taught, preached, wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then, while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my Philip von, uh, of Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. Had I wanted to start trouble, I could have started such a little game at Worms. That was a place that he was brought to trial in front of princes that even the emperor wouldn't have been saved but what would it have been? A mugs game. I did nothing. I left it to the Word. Maybe you're wondering about that coworker, or maybe you're wondering about that family member, that friend. And you're thinking to yourself, do my words matter? Are my words taking root? Do they have any effect in their life? And Luther's encouragement would be what? Speak the Word. Say the word, not with eloquence or fancy footwork or dynamics, but tell them that they're loved by God, that their past is forgiven, that Jesus died for their sins, and God gives them eternal life. He gives them heaven, not because of anything that they did, not because of anything that they can strive for, but because God says in his word that he loves them and he forgives them. And when you worry and when you're frightened to death because you don't believe that the word is working in your life or another person's life, remember. Remember that the word, the word is uncompromisable. Jesus didn't compromise one bit, not in your place and not in his word. Know that that uncompromisable word is worth living and dying for and that your Savior, Jesus, died on the cross for every time that you compromise the word and know that the word will work and the word has worked in your life and the life of many other people. So may this reformation be your reformation, your return back to his word now and forever. Let's pray.
Dear God of the good news, let this, my teaching and my preaching and the witnessing of these people who have heard your word, not be with wise or persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power as revealed in Scripture, so that our faith and the faith of those that we witness to uh, not rest on human wisdom, but on your power. Give us the mind of Christ. Amen.